Welcome to Byline Confidential, a podcast where we talk with journalists about their lives, their work, and their careers. I'm Greg Pratt, reporter in Chicago, and I will tell you right out, I am a man who likes to talk to a man or woman who likes to talk. This week, we're talking to Matt O'Connor, the Matt O'Connor, a mild-mannered newspaper editor at the Chicago Tribune who edits a crime and courts and public corruption stories. He's one of these guys that whenever I'm in the tower at the Tribune Tower, I try to find him and bug him for a little bit and hear his stories. I've been trying to get him on my podcast and we finally made it happen and this is a real fun episode and I think you'll enjoy it. And if you do, I hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes for the high price of nada. But for now, enjoy the talk. So this is an interview I've been unsuccessfully and now successfully trying to wrangle for like a year with Matt O'Connor. Has it been that long? It's probably been that long. I launched it last February, I think. Hmm. But I was trying to get to the news peg because last year was your 40th year in the business. Mm-hmm. Now it's 41, right? 41 in June, but uh, 30 at the Tribune in June. Really? Yeah. This is going to be your yeah. 30th year? Mm-hmm. Yes. I didn't realize that. So I get the thing next year if I last that long. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't kill over and die? (laughs) Or they show me the door. (laughs) The, uh... That's funny. So, um... I didn't realize you'd been at the Tribune quite that long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's gone fast, man. It's amazing. Did you... Was that your goal when you got into journalism, was to end up at a big city paper? Um, goal? Boy, I don't know. Uh, probably, although I was in no particular hurry. You know, I worked for my hometown newspaper and really enjoyed it. And uh, But then there, I think I started to realize that uh, I, I wanted to be like a reporter forever. And I just thought at a, a paper that size, that wasn't going to happen, you know, eventually. And uh, so that's kind of when I think I was thinking about a bigger city place where you had more options. What do you mean you wanted to be a reporter forever? Uh, I meant after I'd started. I, I did not want to be a reporter forever like when I was young. Oh, okay. okay. Um, in fact, uh, I look back and try to figure out how I kind of fell into it, and it's really hard to understand. Had no one, you know, in my family uh, doing it. Um, I, my dad was a lawyer, so I kind of grew up thinking I'd become a lawyer and, you know, had dreams of, like, I had four brothers, so it was going to be O'Connor and O'Connor and O'Connor, you know, we were all going to become lawyers and work together. <laughs> and um, so I was history pre-law at U of I, and then, um, like, about sophomore year or so, I was, it was actually even later than that, I was starting to think, you know what, I don't know if I want to go to law school. I, I really didn't like the kind of people that were going into law school so much and I was kind of getting tired of school too and then I thought I wanted to work and and I thought god what am I going to do you know fall back on a history degree I mean what and you know the only thing I could do with that is either go on further to school or maybe teach in high school I didn't want to do that and I think what ended up happening was I was always interested in like current events and I dabbled a little bit in like the high school newspaper and a little bit, very little bit at the DI, the Daily Illini. And um, 
I, I just walked in on a Friday to the communications office at U of I, and an assistant dean was there, and I, I just was really honest with him. I just said, you know, I, I'm having second thoughts about law school. I, I'd just kind of like to give this a try, basically. And I think he was just blown over by my honesty, you know, as opposed to the kind of speeches you usually hear. And, and that Friday was the deadline to apply for the college for the next semester. And he gave me the paperwork because it was late in the afternoon and said, bring it back Monday. So it's it was just, you know, a bizarre kind of, you know, not easily understood. So many people wanted to do it, like, from the, the earliest age, and I had not figured it out, but, but it really worked out. What were your um, first stories like? Um, I, I worked, I didn't do much in college because since I switched so late, I was taking 18 hour semesters. So, uh, and, and working, you know, part time to, to, um, to pay for school. So, um, but I did a little bit of work for like a, must've been a student magazine or something. And I remember one of the first stories I did was like, go do a feature on like a bartender at a little <laughs> little place in Champagne. So, and I got some reaction to that, you know, some some good feedback from like other students, I think. And um, but so I was really green when I was coming out of coming out of college. Uh, the other break that I had was somebody told me that hey, if you go to the News Gazette, you can work on Friday nights taking uh, phone calls from stringers covering little high school football uh, games all over the area and he would just like take down the basic information and write up like a, a brief basically but that got my foot in the door you know at that place too but it was you know I wasn't doing any anything beyond just those briefs really so so I started kind of at like the lowest level you can I think <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what's the news is get where at that's in Champion, okay. yeah, where U of I is. And the, the interesting thing there in part two is, that, believe it or not, this is 1974 when I graduated, and there were two dailies in Champaign-Urbana at the time. The courier was the, the rival. And so when I did get a job full-time at the News Gazette and started literally the Monday after I graduated, um, there I was, you know, facing competition, and, and that was a great experience. Did they beat you all the time? I, you know what, I can't remember. The, the, at first I did a state desk uh, thing where I was in the main office, and I don't re really remember feeling the competition there, but uh, after that summer was up, they sent me to cover City Hall or, or in Urbana, the smaller of the two cities, and we had like a satellite office there. And the courier had a guy, I think he was in his early 40s at the time, very experienced, so I was going head-to-head -head against him. I'm sure I was getting my ass kicked, you know, in the beginning. But it was because uh, he knew everybody, and, you know, you had to develop sources. But, but it was just, it was good, and that's what I've really fed off of a lot is I'm, uh, I, I hide it very well, but I'm a very competitive person, and so that, that's what drives me to a large degree and really overcomes my shyness, you know, so. Where'd you grow up? You grew up in uh, Peoria, right? Yeah, I grew up in Peoria. My dad was a uh, Southside Irish from Chicago. 
We're recording now. Oh, we are. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. The, uh, the cable guy came, and, <laughs> and now uh, he's My gone. My wife should be here any minute, too. So, Yeah, no, grew up in Peoria. Like I said before, I had four brothers, and so I was the fourth of five, and so that was a big part of my early life, too, was just having these three older brothers. and had a great time. And that made you competitive. I, you know what? I, I peaked in about second grade athletically, but uh, before then, I was a killer. You know, I was so tough. And uh, and then the things we did to the fifth brother, too, you know, that I got to share in, that was a blast. We'd swing him around by his arm, you know, and so he's got, like, long arms. <laughs> That's how it works, isn't it? Better believe it. I, I paid my dues. He had to pay his. <laughs> so, uh... How long were you at that small paper? At the uh, News Gazette? Yeah. Yeah, two years. Two years. Um, and, you know, covering City Hall for most of the time. So it was it was good experience. Do you have any good stories there that you remember? Oh, jeez. Hmm. You know what? I, I don't... I, I remember, like, some late-night city council meetings and stuff like that where we had... Uh, I think we had an afternoon edition, and I so the deadline was like really early, and I'd basically like stay up the whole night writing several stories, you know, a few times. Um, I don't know, I can't remember anything that really stands out. I do remember like once, uh, once they hired, they were gonna, they were interviewing for a top job. I can't remember if it was police chief or what, and I went over uh, to the local motel and kind of sweet-talked the uh, the female desk clerk into, like, confirming that, you know, some, some somebody was staying there. I had a name, you know, so that was like, <laughs> led to a story, <laughs> you know, that, that the candidate was in town interviewing or whatever, so, but uh, no, nothing, nothing that stands out. Well, so, um... How'd you learn to report? Because you're coming in green, right? And, yeah. And that's kind of what you're doing at that small paper, isn't it? Uh, kind of, yeah. Uh, you know what? I had a really good education. I mean, uh, some of it was hands-on. Um, I mean, we covered city council meetings and uh, had some really good teachers at U of I. Uh, more, more from, I think I, I think I came in with a strong ethic, uh, you know, to because of my faith and family, you know, as much as anything. Um, but, yeah, you just you just get out there. And so, so I mean, I knew, I knew how to write a story because, you know, we had, like, you know, even, like, just the basic journalism courses, and I took, like, a magazine writing course. So, so I was green in the sense that I just hadn't done a lot of writing, but I think I was, you know, pretty well educated, so... So I don't know how to explain it better than that. Just experience. You just get out there and roll with the punches. How'd you get picked up by the Peoria paper? Um, they'd actually offered me a job two years earlier, you know, when I graduated too, but it was going to be on the copy desk, and I, I wanted a report. And uh, so I, I turned that down. Um, so I, maybe they knew of me from there, but... Um, I just hit it off with the managing editor. I got really good interviews, 
one thing I used to do, like uh, if we take trips and stuff, sometimes I just would like, for the hell of it, like call up local newspapers along the way and stop in and like, you know, talk to people. And I got really good at interviews <laughs> that way. So I, I told him the things he wanted to hear. Like I, I, I'll, I'll never forget one of my best lines years ago was, "I won't be outworked." And I said that to the managing editor of the Journal Star. And, you know, we just we just quit. So that was a lie, wasn't it? <laughs> no, I, that was the truth. The, the funny thing about the Peoria job too was um, Marie and I were engaged, and um, she was back in Peoria. She's also from Peoria. I was in Champaign Urbana, and so I wanted to get to Peoria to you know to for the for the marriage for the sake of the marriage, and uh, it was looking really bad. I, I actually got a offer from a weekly newspaper as opposed to Champaign-Urbana Peoria did not have daily competition it was the only game in town um, so we were joking around with friends and stuff to get us like a pass to a holiday inn at Bloomington Normal which was like the halfway point between the two towns because it looked like for a while we were going to you know, begin the marriage apart but then I got that job and I literally started the day after our honeymoon ended <laughs> And Tom Driscoll, who was the managing editor, hired me, uh, handed me uh, the AP style book and said, you know, read this, you know, before I started. So basically told me to read it over my honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I've uh, I don't know where it comes from, or but I've always had like a, a, maybe even a crazy work ethic to a degree. The Peoria paper, for instance, was a newspaper guild, so it was, you know, a union position, so it was strict in terms of I was only supposed to work a seven and a half hour day, but I ignored that plenty without putting in the overtime often for, for stuff and just felt like I, I, I wanted to put in the effort I felt I needed to, to do a story right essentially and that was just kind of the credo that I've, I've lived by you know my, my whole career I've never worked at a union paper and you know if, if, if you're getting screwed like like somebody wants you to spend 12 hours working on a crappy story or something mm-hmm. that's probably not good but if you're working on stuff that like has meaning to you which you should be you know mm-hmm. like who cares if you're working a little more than seven and a half hours you know right i assume a lot of that is self-motivated right like you're working on stuff you're interested in or stuff that yeah i think so I, well i i think uh when you start off though a lot of times um you know you're not necessarily working on stuff you'd like to sure but uh like the best example i can think of in peoria was i covered the santa claus parade three years in a row <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but the, the neat thing about that was the peoria paper had two editions at the time, morning and evening. And so before you'd leave to go cover the parade, you actually had to write the story for the evening edition. And I used to always, you know, like give it to the editors about, you know, how you, you, you have me, you know, Santa's jolly and waving, and what if he gets shot? You know, we've got the evening edition out. You know, so. And then the, the, the second year, you know, I'm getting tired of this assignment already, of course, so I jumped, on the spur of the moment, I jumped in the um, mechanized street sweeper that was following the horses and, you know, took, interviewed the, the driver and had fun with the story. And 
of course, they loved it. So <laughs> the next year again. <laughs> so, so you interviewed the guy who's sweeping up the poop, yeah, the horse yeah, poop, basically. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good angle. Yeah. Uh, was it? Um, because you you uh, were you just hired to do general assignment? Or yeah, something? yeah. For the Peoria paper, I was. Yeah. So it was it was good experience. I did a lot of different things, helping out at city hall. The courthouse. Eventually, I covered Saturday Night Cops, which I really enjoyed. Um, a lot of business stuff too, and especially later. What was the best of that? Would it be the cops or? Cops was fun, you know. Like um, had my first battles with cops too on stories, like where I I think I interviewed like a witness. In a murder case, you know, got him by phone, and of course he was telling me something a little differently than what he told police, and of course they, you know, really got upset about that and tried to do the good cop, bad cop on me. So that was that was interesting experience. What do you mean they <laughs> took you in and beat well, you was, or something? No, I was in. <laughs> I was at the police station. I don't remember the circumstances, and you know, one guy was being really nice to me, and the other guy was being <laughs> hard ass trying to get me to. Like, I don't know what now, but they were they were. All upset over the story, so. But it was a lesson too because the guy, the guy that I interviewed was a little, little off, and I just did it by phone, you know. And uh, I don't think I'd really picked up on that as much by phone. So it was just a, you know, hey, next time maybe in person would have been better. Not that I told the cops that. Yeah. <laughs> the. Uh, uh, how long before you started to like? Um, and maybe maybe it felt good at the beginning, but how long before you started to think, man, I'm I'm good at this, or I might get really good at this? Oh boy, I don't know. That's a tough one. You mean to like jump to someplace else, like a bigger city, or, or no, just like you know, I'm ready for bigger stories, or uh, um, I don't think that takes too long, right? Because you're ambitious in a way, and you just want to do important things so um, you know it, it's weird how it works out because eventually I started doing heavily business stuff because the economy uh, went south in Peoria and they had some historic closings and one of the you know reasons I got onto that was an editor came up one day and handed me a press release to to uh, write about and uh, it was it was uh uh, Hiram Walker had uh, buried the lead, you know, in this release, so he didn't realize what he'd handed me. On the second page was the fact that they were going to close the last distillery in Peoria, which was you know, historic for the town, and, and you know, about fell over when I when I is this does this say what I think it says kind of thing, you know? So, so, uh, so I increasingly, you know, was doing business stuff and it felt it felt like I was there at like a pivotal time kind of in Peoria's history and it was just it was just added to the pleasure I think too because I just felt like uh, you know growing up there and stuff and not giving back but just like contributing so um, is that like uh, what years are we talking about when that distillery and the economy starts going down and late 70s early 80s and uh, that probably would have been pretty. 
It's probably still an interesting beat to cover business down there because they've got big companies like Caterpillar, right? Or maybe yeah. just one big company. I don't know how many they've got. but Well, Caterpillar was the king even then yeah. and still. But no, there were plenty of other important employers, too, that I was writing about. There's Keystone Steel and Wire, and they were having problems. And then, like, some guy from Texas took them over, so I went down and interviewed him in Dallas. And uh, when Hiram Walker closed, I went to Fort Smith, where they moved their operation, and wrote about that. And Pabst Brewery um, closed the last uh, brewery in Peoria. And it was a profitable plant, so I had to write about that. That was really confusing. You know, why would you close a place if it was making money? But they just had too much uh, capacity. And so I got, I really got into, like, the beer business, you know. And that's that's what's fun about the, uh, the work is that you, you know, really have to almost become an expert at stuff to know what you're talking about. I always get a kick out of the fact how... Sometimes, you know, you really have to figure out something just in a day, and then your story appears, and then others like radio want to talk to you like you're the expert. You just, you know, you barely know anything about it, just enough to do that story. It's like, I can answer, I can basically say what's in my story. Yes, exactly. That's that's, Everything I know is in the story. I've said that many times. (laughs) As long as there are no follow-up questions, you can ask me anything you want. I think the thing you learn early on, too, is is not to not to extend yourself too. like if if I, I got very good at like uh, if there was something I was just even a little bit unsure of okay I'm not going there you know <laughs> and just pull back a little bit and you can still do good good work and not make mistakes were you at um were you at the Peoria paper for eight years Seven and a half, yeah. Seven not and to, a half. <laughs> yes, That's awfully yeah. specific. <laughs> you must drive your reporters crazy with that kind of specificity. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. But I'm very detail oriented. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one of the things, and I know this from like chatting with you, mm-hmm. is that like you did a big, huge caterpillar series, right? Right. Right. Um, so. You know, I'd done all this businessy stuff, and then uh, Steve Strahler left the paper for Crane's Chicago business for a full-time position, and that opened up our business section for Peoria. That was a a one-day-a-week thing where you were kind of the editor and the reporter. You'd go out and, you know, interview local business people and write features and stuff. And um, within a couple months of getting that assignment, the managing editor called me in and said, uh, we've got a story we want you to do, and it was basically about Caterpillar's future. With with that new assignment to uh, Caterpillar was part of my turf. I'd not really covered them before that. So, you know, within weeks of starting that, they, they give me this big assignment. It's supposed to be six weeks. They're going to pull me off my regular duties to just focus on this. Um, we're talking about Caterpillar's competition, and and so I turned the six weeks into six months and uh, traveled to Japan, where I th- my wife will correct me if I'm wrong in this, but I think we were there three weeks, maybe two, but three weeks. You took your wife to Japan? Took, took on my the wife trip? And, and our, our You're smooth. child at the time. Uh, paid for her way, 
you know, the paper paid for mine. But Komatsu, um, Caterpillar's chief rival, I'd written them a letter, and so they invited us, basically, you know, at my request. So we were their guests, and it was, it was you know, unlike anything, any experience I'd ever had, like probably before or since, really, because to be treated so well. You know? <laughs> Caterpillar, of course, treated me like crap. And uh, uh, Komatsu would get one journal star delivered to Tokyo, so they were very familiar with my work and the newspaper. And it was a major uh, source of information for them on Caterpillar because we covered them closely. Were they just subscribing for the Caterpillar stories? Um, like for a competitive yeah. advantage? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's Absolutely. amazing. Yeah. So uh, that's why they had me come, because they were going to try to get as much from me as I was going to get from them, but they lost that battle badly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I had a great time there. Uh, uh, one, you know, in, in of course, growing up in this environment where you don't accept anything from anybody, right? Like, I, I just had, like... You know, I didn't want to like insult them, so we pretty much said yes to everything. That a lot of times they didn't even ask. Like the very, literally, the first night we were there, they had a banquet in my honor. With all these Komatsu people there, and my wife and I on the other side of the table, you know, by ourselves. They were all over there, so it was it was. And then uh, one day they took her to Komatsu or to uh, the historic city. I'm forgetting the name of it. Uh, well, they gave me plant tours, and and she went was my wife was uh, had like a chauffeur uh, to drive there, uh, uh, somebody else to you know uh, to guide her, and then I'm going on the plant tour, and we arrive at the plant tour, and on the the billboard at the front of the plant says you know the day's events. The Matt O'Connor. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and and like people were saluting me at all these stops within the plant and everything. It was just, it was wild. So it was, and I turned it into a ten-part series. Um, you know, um, and it really got a you know a ton of reaction in Peoria. Tell me and, about the stories. Um, what I was you know most proud of probably was. Um, the very first day we did a piece where, you know, I did all this travel, but the first day we just focused right on Peoria and a plant there, and I interviewed different levels of, um, from, you know, labor all the way up to top management at this plant, and what was so interesting was the different point of view from, depending on who you talk, talk to, and it really raised, for the first time, Caterpillar had a tremendous quality uh, reputation and and this story kind of questioned it, that there were problems you know with the quality and that really really frightened the company with 10 parts you know they knew 10 parts are gonna <laughs> but that was that was as probably as bad as it got from from their perspective but I, I uh, a couple other you know quick highlights too I, I, I like drove to New York to interview Wall Street analysts about Caterpillar 
And on the way, I stopped at, like, dealerships, Caterpillar dealerships and stuff. Because, again, I'm trying to, like, gauge the opinion from, you know, every angle we can think of, right, about Caterpillar. And I just dropped in, spur of the moment, in a dealership in Piscataway, New Jersey, on a Friday afternoon. And just, I'm shooting the breeze with the guys, and somebody mentions, oh, you should have been here last Friday. It was December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day, and they did this thing you know, like to fire up the troops and it was like an anti-Japanese thing because of the monsoon. I was like, oh, wow. And then eventually I found out somebody had taped it. So I worked like months to get this tape. At first they weren't, you know, they had to find it. And I finally got the tape and, and, you know, did a little story uh, on that too where they were, because I thought that was so, so great. But when I was in Japan too, I found out that there was actually a guy working for Komatsu who had once worked for Caterpillar. So I actually got to sit down and interview him, too, and did a story, and I just thought that was an interesting point of view as well. But, you know, it was it was great fun, and when it was over with, um, I was asked to speak at all these clubs in Peoria, you know, everything from Rotary on down. And and so I, I, I knew I'm a hammer and har. I knew that I was not going to wing it, you know, for the speech. So I wrote like a kind of an abbreviated version of the ten-part series, right? <laughs> and so I just I I read it as best as I, I could, and then I take questions and answers. And uh, it was really pretty enjoyable. A little nerve-wracking. I wouldn't probably eat the lunch, you know, <laughs> much because <but laughs> the speech would be afterwards. But but it was fun, and one of the highlights was. I gave a very short or a, a speech to a, a small crowd one day, and, and uh, as I looked out, my grandmother was out there in the audience, so that, that meant a lot to me. Was that a... Uh, was it ultimately a series where you were bullish on their future, or you reflected good for their future, bad for their future? It was a mix. It was a mix. It was kind of a, it was kind of a warning, you know, that Komatsu's on the horizon and they're a real threat you know to the company so that, that's the company love that Caterpillar love that because that that geared up the, the Peoria area that this is real this this is not some something that the company's making up um, so that was that was a big part of it um, won a national business prize for it got to go to the uh, uh, to New York to accept it. Um, I'm forgetting the famous hotel where it was at, and I shared my five thousand dollars with the uh, with the photographer and uh, graphic artist. Was it like it's not the Astoria, is it, it's or the Waldorf? Waldorf, yeah, it was the Waldorf Astoria. Or no, wait, we we stayed at the Plaza Hotel, so maybe it was right there. They, they booked us in at the plaza, so my, that was one of my highlights. My uh, my knowledge of uh, Swank Hotels is very, very limited. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but it was in the plaza. It's no longer a hotel. It's like a condo now or something. Do you... Um, how did it turn out? So, like, I don't know as much. Is Komatsu still around? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, you know... Uh, at one point, I was like the authority on Caterpillar and that kind of thing, but of course, those days are long gone. <laughs> um, my wife's uh, 
parents when they died though they we inherited some stock from them so now now I look at it for, for that purpose only. <laughs> but uh, they weathered the storm quite well I mean uh, the Japanese economy you know uh, encountered problems and um, and and so that helped over the period and, and caterpillars you know, remained very strong they, they had an international business, you know, even then, and it's even more so now. Was that the highlight of your time in Peoria? Without a doubt, you know. I mean, I had a great time because you would get a lot of reaction to your stories from friends and family, which was a lot of fun. But, uh, yeah, that was far and away, you know, maybe the most important thing I've worked on actually my entire career. You think so? I, well, I've never spent six months on one thing. You know, I, I'm proud of, you know, what I accomplished. I, it actually took me a month to write. And at first I was having problems in the newsroom because people were coming up and interrupting me constantly. And they found me a little cubbyhole. I think it was down in advertising. There was no air circulation. And I actually, I forget, I got some sort of something. I broke out in something. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, got it done in, in a month. Ten, ten parts, so it was a hell of a lot of work. Did that get you noticed at the Tribune or? At the uh, Wall Street Journal, actually. I uh, got a job in Chicago with the Wall Street Journal. How did I not know that? Yeah, well, I don't talk about it much because it didn't last that long. <laughs> what happened there? Well, um, it was a big jump, you know, obviously from the pure paper to the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> I mean, maybe the biggest jump in history. <laughs> and, uh, um, a tough boss, a guy who took a chance on me, but wasn't a very good manager of people, and uh, very quickly was like putting pressure on, like you know, like my job was at risk, and so it became very unpleasant. And I stayed for about a year and a half and jumped to the trip, and uh, I did some stuff, you know, I'm proud of. While I was there, I, I found one yesterday that ran on one. Uh, I covered like manufacturing and then got into the commodity stuff. Uh, and I did one on the T-Bond pit back in the day when there was a lot of competition there. And it was, you know, former athletes and it was just like this incredibly intense physical arena where uh, you had to fight basically every day for your position. And uh, so I kind of featureized it and it ran on the front page in their middle. Um, story that you know was more not comical but you know more featurey. Sure. James Kwasiborski is accustomed to taking his lumps in his rough and tumble job, but this day was worse than usual. Two co-workers jockeying for position tumbled against him, knocking him off his pins, and a 220-pound colleague landed atop him, cracking three of Mr. Kwasiborski's ribs and putting him out of commission for a week. Mr. Kwasiborski isn't a construction worker, but a trader in the Treasury Bond Futures Pit at the Chicago Board of Trade. And you continue. That's nice. That's interesting. Yeah, I was hoping you would, like, interrupt me in my terrible reading voice, but that is pretty... That is a... That's a nice... That's interesting. Um, it's funny to think about that as a contact sport. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was... I mean... Uh, covering commodities was, was tough. 
uh, because it's just so confusing. Like I never, never understood options, you know. But uh, but yeah, it that brought it home. I mean, to, when you when you'd look at the pit, you really had no idea what was going on, you know. I mean, it was just it was just insane. Um, but of course, those are almost on almost completely out now we've just written about that in recent weeks uh, it's all computerized now yeah very very little of that remains so you you jumped to the trib and did you jump as a courts reporter no I, business so I, I was pretty much a business reporter at that point and uh, stayed for three years in the business section the third editor in that time was coming in so there were a lot of changes and um, somehow or other, he made my name available uh, for for the asking, and Metro grabbed me up and uh, assigned me to 26 in California. And a lot of people in the business section were like, "Who did you piss off?" You know, it was like, a, "Like, what happened?" So I heard enough of that that I went in to talk to the editor at the time, Jack Fuller, who was an, a lawyer, to just, you know. Ask him who you pissed off? Well, or hear how, you know, his explanation, I guess. I obviously didn't quite put it that way to him. But he told me something I'll never forget, that no, he was, you know, this was the courts, the legal uh, positions, uh, assignments were important to him, and uh, he wanted sophisticated coverage. I remember, like, oh my God, sophisticated. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm your man. I'll give him my best shot. <laughs> but the funny thing is, I did wonder in the back of my head. I, I don't really believe this is the case, but I had done a hard-hitting story on Borg Warner and its chairman, who also happened to sit on the board of directors of the Tribune at the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> but. Uh, but what it, it brought me back to kind of the reasons why I got into the business in the first place, the traditional stuff, and, and uh, you know, I, I love 26 and Cal and was really proud to be part of the beat because that's the criminal courts and, and that's, like, that's the, the front page. That There's such a strong heritage, you know, in Chicago. The front page um, play, movie, um, there were like 10 or 12 papers, you know, at the time, and it was just about the competition. Times had changed a lot by the time I got there, but it was still, you know, an honor to get to cover a beat like that. Is there crime in Cook County? <laughs> you know, it's amazing. That huge courthouse, and it's all felonies. No misdemeanors, so it's... it's uh, and they've got, you know, they've got uh, bond courts just for murders and rapes. 66 so it's it's pretty staggering the very first day I was there was memorable because um, Lynette Myers was the Tribune reporter before me she's no longer in the paper is that she got married right I met her Did, yeah, I, I, I think I don't know. I, she's, she writes for a magazine a national magazine and I don't I can't remember she's a very good writer yeah, yeah. Um, so she was going to show me around you know introduce me to a few people we got off the uh, elevator on the, I think it was the top floor, the seventh floor, and we heard this loud crash and went down to investigate. And a woman had just been shown photos of her 
uh, murdered son, she was about to take the witness stand and be the witness to say, you know, that yes, he had been alive. And, and she fainted, and she didn't even get like her arms out to like, you know, to help on the fall. She just smacked that floor like, and that was my introduction to Twenty Six and Cal. It's that kind of place, a lot of emotion and drama. Yeah. How long were you there? Three years. Which, um, at the time when I got it, they said they wouldn't keep me there more than three years. That they, they felt like it was a burnout place, and then if you stayed longer, you know, you might burn out. But I, I did not feel burned out because, again, for better or worse, I, I try to keep, like, you know, some distance to, you know, you know, not, like, get so deeply involved in stuff that you're, like, in the middle of it. Where, where it's affecting you to that degree. Not that it wouldn't, you know, on a day-to-day basis. But, but uh, so, yeah, three years. Best trial you covered? Well, the biggest case I covered while I was there was the DeWallabies. It was parents, suburban parents. That's what made it so great for the Tribune, suburban. Suburban parents charged with killing their seven-year-old daughter. White suburban parents. And it was a huge, you know, story. Everybody in town covering it. And uh, was, you know, for me, the most memorable part was the, the payoff was I covered, I, I spent the time to cover the jury selection where I was in there taking notes on, you know, everybody who was being questioned and their background and whatever was coming out. And then when we had a verdict, um, Everyone was being blocked from getting to talk to the forewoman, and I knew where she worked because of that. And reached her at her desk at the uh, office, and she didn't really want to talk. And I just kept talking, and then she, you know, warmed up, and and then she told me that um, one of the big influences was these photos of this violence inside the house, like there'd been a, somebody had punched a door, and none of that had been like entered into evidence because that had been done before like years before you know it was one of the Diwalabies had grown up in the house and like a brother had done that like many years before and yet for the jury that was like evidence and so I wrote this front page story then you know based on what she told me so that was that was pretty good (laughs) didn't they get off the uh, before it went to the jury, the judge dropped the charges against the mother, let the jury decide on the dad, and they convicted him. But then he got off on appeal. It was a huge, huge case, you know. And I, and again, I, like I always did, tried to remain objective. I mean, if I was going to do a book, there was a book done on the case, but I wasn't going to. Do that book because, of course, they took a point of view, you know, which you probably have to, right? If you're going to do a book, I don't know if they were guilty or not. They tried to come up with an alternative um, um, uh, explanation that someone broke in through this basement window, but it was like a really small window. And they even came up with a guy who had done something similar, not killed anybody, but had broken into a house, you know, in the area not too long before that. 
but it was a really tactical mistake by the defense because then the prosecution could like rip that apart instead of just having to defend the weakness of their case. It was a weak case, and it was shocking in some ways the kind of evidence that they relied on because as a, as a parent, you'd sit there listening and, and realize that these are the things that you know they could point to you. You know, it was just some silly stuff. Like like scalding your kid or something? No, what was it? It was like like letting her play outside once and not really, you know, by herself or something. She was seven, you know, out in the front front yard or something, and the dad was inside and just was, you know, just the kind of everyday thing that you, you, you might do. You sure. Know? And yet they twisted it to make it all bad. So... And then the uh, next stop is what, the federal courthouse? Federal, federal court, yeah. 15 years there. Jesus. So probably probably longer than anybody and probably longer than I should have. But I've always, you know, really been in, in it for just the stories. And there's so many great stories there. What's, what's uh, this is more of like a, a process thing, but what makes a good court reporter? Oh, boy. I assume you thought of yourself as being a good court reporter. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I'm not too fancy. And, you know, when people talk about journalists and stuff, and I'm like, well, I'm a reporter. I don't know. Maybe I'm too hard on myself. But we in the federal courthouse, there were a lot of old-timers that would, um, you know, retirees who would be there just for the fun of it. And... Um, some of those guys liked my stuff because they had been in the courtroom and I wrote it like they saw it. And really, that's, to me, what you're trying to do is just bring it, you know, to the reader and um, and with clarity. I think that's what I've always strived for, too, is just clarity and, and just to, to, you know, go with the most interesting stuff, you know, just make it a, as interesting a read as you can. So nothing, no great lofty, you know, things, but just just those basics. Uh, well, clarity. Clarity is important, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So um, in all those years, like, uh, um, what are, like, your favorite stories? You know, my favorite stories are like, well, I love public corruption. I mean, if you're going to cover a beat like that, that that's why you're there. Um, that's so, one of those quotes that can get taken out of context. I love public corruption. <laughs> I love to cover public corruption. <laughs> um, so, you know, that that's the bread and butter of that beat. But what I think I loved the most of all was just kind of the oddballish, different kind of stories that would come along. Um, maybe the most important one of those might have been the point shaving scandal at uh, Northwestern, both basketball and football. So I, I kind of enjoyed like writing sports related stuff a little bit too. You know, I don't, I don't know why. But, so I got to team up with Rick Morrissey on that story. He's now with the Sun Times as a columnist, and so that was that was fascinating. So they were like rigging games, or. Um the point spread. They they were uh, basketball was a really bad team, and and they just would try to lose by more than the point spread. But they they, I just was looking at clips, and I think they finished the year five and twenty something that year. Um, but what was interesting was the investigation first uncovered the basketball side, but then 
then they discovered the same thing happened in football. And on that side, you know, there was like, in one instance, I think of a guy fumbling purposely and stuff, you know, to, to, uh, I think, to lose the game, at least the uh, point spread. That must have made people mad. Like readers? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, embarrassed the university, too. But but it was just, it you know, kind of opened up this very interesting world of gambling. Um, So it was a lot of fun to cover. The the highlight might have been um, uh, one of the athletes um, had to speak as part of his probation, had to go speak uh, out about, you know, what he did. And I went down to Georgia, the University of Georgia, where one of the first places he was going to talk, and had worked it out with him that we'd talk afterwards. And it was, it was, it was. I got a story out of it, but it was, it was tough because, um, you know, there were girls that he was more interested in down there. So. <laughs> Did you put that in the story? No, I didn't. And and uh, you know what? The other problem I had too was I had a tape recorder malfunction. And uh, so that was a disaster, you know. Um, so I had to kind of cobble together a story. It was very disappointing. I even remember, like, trying to get some tech people back at the Tribune to fix the thing to see if the, anything survived. But, but uh, one of the hazards of the, the job. That's probably actual tape recording at that time, too, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not to date you or anything. I've been through a lot of changes, but not that. <laughs> you know what? Uh, when I first started at the uh, Wall Street Journal, believe it or not, at Peoria, we had computers. But at the um, spot desk, they called it where you would take essentially bulletins. Uh, businesses would be calling in with news, and we would want to get it out on the wire immediately because it would affect stock prices. Literally. Manual typewriters back then, and two, two, uh, what did they call them? Two people that, that type it up, you know, to feed it back to New York. Um, I can't think of the right terminology. Copy boys? Not no. copy boys, but it was, uh, yeah, they were sending it back to, to New York and had to retype it in. But it was amazing, even to me back then. That, and I had a hell of a time with the little fingers trying to work with it. <laughs> The typewriters. <laughs> uh, you ever get threatened or cover like mafia stuff while you were? Covered a lot of mafia stuff uh, at Federal. Uh, you know what? The mafia guys are usually too smart for that. Uh, in fact, uh, some of them were really nice guys. <laughs> really nice guys. And, uh, you know, would chit chat with me at breaks and stuff, and be really, really friendly. Never seemed to be bothered by my coverage at all. Uh, but I did cover. Uh, I think I might have told you about this previously. Chicago Heights had a, a corrupt ex-mayor on trial with a couple of council members, and I covered covered that. They loved me at the beginning too, but then one day there was some testimony about him having an affair. His wife had since died. And uh, it, they didn't allow it into evidence, but I still wrote about it because, you know, we can, right? And it was, it was pertinent. I forget the context now, but, boy, that next day, whew, they were really <laughs> upset because, of course, it was, you know, one thing to be corrupt, but then another to be cheating on this wife. 
in this uh, Italian American enclave, and um, and uh, some of his buddies, his son, and others just followed me down the hallway, you know, threatening me, and and uh, it was it was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just ignore him? You Did you what, play I the tough I guy? I can't remember. Uh, I just I think I was like trying to walk away from him. You know, basically, like just to walk away, but they just kept following me down the hallway. So I don't remember, but I, I will say this: that that I I seriously was worried about my security for a little while there, and I did tell um, somebody from the FBI, "Hey, if something happens to me, <laughs> here's the guys you should go looking for." <laughs> Nothing did. <laughs> the uh, you know, I know that. Uh I know that the biggest trial you covered was the Ryan trial, right? Mm-hmm. Was that the biggest? Yeah, that was the biggest. Six months, most important. First ex-governor in a long time to go to trial. So that was huge. They brought in help. Uh, uh, Rudy Bush covered it with me. Uh, they brought in a third reporter to cover everything else that was going on at federal court. So we had three reporters, you know. So it was, it was pretty intense. Uh, we got a story every day. There were some days where it didn't look like we might because there there were very slow periods. It was it slogged at times. But, but um, did it give you any like insight into? Uh, I mean, covering a governor, a corrupt governor's trial. I mean, what's that like? And did it give you any insight into like the state of Illinois? Well, I, I had a pretty good idea, you know, before then because. Uh, Fifteen years. I mean, I, I I started a list. You know, some of the people I covered, but I, I can't even tell you how many aldermen I covered. But you know, I was there for Silver Shovel, and I think maybe eight might have been indicted in that uh, investigation alone, including Larry Bloom, who was the squeaky clean, you know, uh, alderman, um, and just up and down. I mean, county, city, police. Just uh, you know, just it's it's amazing. I, I once uh, gave a speech to I, I forget a law enforcement group I think, and in preparation and tried to add up some of those numbers. I, I don't have that you know on me, but it was pretty staggering uh, stuff. So no, uh, no. And, and you know what was interesting about Ryan is that investigation took eight years basically to his trial. You know, so it started. Very small as a licenses uh, for bribes, kind of a scandal at the Secretary of State, where he was then, you know, the head, and and then just over the years it built. But even the case against him was largely that Secretary of State stuff, and a little bit with things he did as a governor. So so even even then, you know, there were tensions and stuff too. Obviously, he was no fan of the Tribune at that point and uh, his son you know hated hated me too so there were there were a few moments there too but by then I pretty much had taken the position that I wasn't gonna take shit from anybody so <laughs> I just give it back if I got it so but the lawyers were all professional sure were you um so with, with the Ryan stuff um so that's an eight year investigation and like are people aware of it well you know, hey, there's an investigation. It was huge news, yeah. I mean, uh, 
like like before it like hits the papers like are you hearing whispers hey people are investigating George Ryan um, I may not have maybe some political reporters might have you know been picking up on that kind of thing but yeah I was well sourced though so so yeah I, I would have um, you know I just can't remember if um, I don't think they had any idea where it was headed at the beginning for sure you know because uh, but but fairly quickly it went from the license selling to tying into the um, to the fundraising by Ryan at the Secretary of State. It was all connected. And um, but yeah, I, I just don't re- remember. But I, I was well sourced in those days to know to have a pretty good feel for where it might be heading. Um, you know, one of the stories we broke was. Um, was uh, they started to look at leases at the licensing facilities, and that was a tip I got. And then that story really relied on some sourcing of mine, and it was so sensitive that I asked not for a byline on the story. So it was a front-page story that a couple of the reporters got the credit for, and, and yet it would, without that sourcing, it wouldn't have made it over the hump. You know, so um, that's good. That's uh. Always good to have a byline, though. But yeah, you don't. You know, that's not what you're going to do. Yeah. Every every day, but it just it uh, it was a very. I, I wanted to protect the source. It was it was a a really good source. So. Did you um? Was the Ryan trial a um a media circus? Because um, he wasn't like Blago, right? He didn't come out and yeah, like. Yeah, I think Blago took it to another level. It, it was for its time. It was you know a huge deal and and widely covered. I mean, every day, um, I you know I decided I I don't know why we we, we actually had two reporters in the courtroom, and back in those days, uh, I I wanted to be there for every second of it. So Rudy, it fell on Rudy to. Bush to jump out at breaks, and you know this. This was a little before we were, to, you know, crazy on the internet. We were still doing stuff, but so it wasn't as intense as it, it quickly became uh, on that score. But but so I'd sit like in the front row, actually where prosecutors kind of sat, but it was right by the jury box and gave me like a really clear, close view of the witness stand. And the rest of the press was in the, on the other side of the courtroom in two or three or four rows. I don't know what it was, but a lot of rows. So there were a ton of, ton of people there every day. But Blago, you know, Ryan, Ryan did it one way. He did it the traditional way where he just never said anything and let his lawyers, you know, do the talking for him. And Blago just blew up that, you know. And turned out to be, you know, horrible move on his part. Yeah, well, uh, all that all Blago ever did was make people mad at him, right? Like prosecutors and stuff. Right, and the judge. Yeah, you know, the judge. He, he pretty much thumbed his nose at the system, and I think uh, we'll see. His appeal is still up. It's been over a year since oral argument, and we'll see if they do anything on his sentence. His sentence seemed a little, little severe, but. But, uh, but, yeah, he did all he could to thumb his nose at the system. Did Ryan ever say anything uh, funny to you or, like... Uh, there were a few, couple times 
awkward times at the urinal, you know, during <laughs> breaks at the trial and stuff. But uh, nothing funny. No, he he didn't seem to have much of a sense of humor at that point. Yeah. Is it um that that was a uh, right after that is when you became the course editor, right? Well, I came back to the tower and worked for about a year, um, trying to develop. Uh, investigative stuff, and I kind of, I kind of struggled a little bit, like finding my niche, partly because I'd been doing courts for so long, and partly because when I came back, I kind of, they really didn't want me pursuing that. You know, we we had new people at the courthouse, and so I had to kind of, I would have liked to have like worked off that to somehow, not like uh, getting in the way of the beat reporter, but. Um, so, so I really had to carve out a whole new area, and, and I struggled. And um, and then an editor became uh, sick and was taking some time off, and they asked me to fill in for her, and then, you know, I ended up staying. Uh, I guess I don't, I, I'm not going to say I was a natural at it for sure, but but I seemed to fit the need. Sure. <laughs> and I think it. Pretty quickly after I was doing it, Jeff Cohen was covering the uh, Family Secrets trial, so I helped, you know, with with the editing there and and just having the experience, you know, that I had um, at the courthouse, I think was was so helpful. Do you ever now that you're editing stuff like when Family Secrets happens or Blago happens or this Bolingbroke terrorist case thing mm-hmm. happens? Like man, I wish I was still. Report- I wish I was reporting that. Uh, partly, but you know what? I had, um, I'd had enough. You know, I really had. Um, I mean, I, there's times where I miss it, um, but it's so much easier now to let the reporter, you know, do the grunt work and then sit back at the tower and then look at their product and try to refine it. You know, <laughs> and of course you're doing that for several reporters every day, but uh, driving people crazy. But uh, but it's yeah no it's um, there there've been times certainly and Blagojevich was such a such a huge story, but I got to edit you know that those trials too, so you feel like you're still a piece of it. No one gives you any credit for it, but that's okay. <laughs> so um, do you have like? big picture I mean 41 years in the news business and you've seen and done all this stuff like you feel good about it? I feel really good about it but again you know it goes back a little bit to what I was talking about before for me it's just like the basics you know pride in the fact that that I survived this long in a lot of ways and and thrived Um, you know never having been out of work for a day, you know, in the 41 years. Um, saw a lot of talented people drop out along the way for other things or other reasons. Um, and just, you know, some pride, too, and just, like, holding up the ideals of our of our profession, you know, that um, I know what it's like to be under pressure. That federal court, the pressure there was intense at times when things were hot, and and you know I could have easily like concocted an anonymous source, you know, to, to be able to 
get back at the competition, like on a story maybe they beat us on. And, you know, uh, I didn't do anything like that. And, you know, that, that makes me proud, too, that, that, you know, that I stayed strong ethically. And that was important to me from early on. Anything, um, anything else you'd like to say? Mm. You know, when you ask a question like that, no one ever comes up with anything. No, it's like a leading <laughs> question too. It's like a. It's like it's like when you used to like call like uh, cop shops, you know, by phone and say, "Hey, anything happening today?" You know, that general question. That no, nothing. And of course, they might have just had like you know some horrible thing happen, but they're not going to tell you unless you know. Precisely. It's amazing how um, oftentimes, as a journalist, you kind of got to barter a little bit, right? Yeah. Or you, if you, you know. Hey, you know what you forgot to ask me about was the one thing you wanted to talk about, though, was the time I got picked out in court. I was getting there. Oh, you were? Okay. The <laughs> I thought you were ending it. <laughs> I, we're winding down, but we're going to end it strong, right? Uh, so... I was almost because I went and I looked in the Tribune's archive and I couldn't find it because oh, it must really? it must have been that old. But so no, no, you're wrong because uh, the one good thing is I started in '85, the year that they went electronic with clips. So all my clips should be there. I don't know. No, the save system got goofy, you know, a few years ago or something. But but uh, so you were uh, the bearded bank robber. Well, uh, you know, allegedly. You can confess. According to one to one eyewitness. But, yeah, it was this incredible uh, trial. This was, of course, you know, as it turned out, one of the highlights of the 15 years I was there. And I think it was the very first year uh, or so that I was on the beat. And um, there had been this husband-wife bank robbery team. The wife ended up getting killed after this police chase, you know, and, and captured the husband. So he goes on trial, and, and he'd been a former cop. He, you know, seemed like a normal type of guy. And uh, this trial was just amazing because every day there was something different about it. He was just very violent, but also just this efficient bank robber. He'd come in with a you know, gun in one hand and a police raider on the other to just hear if they were on to him. And so um, he scared the hell out of people. And so the teller testimony was riveting. He'd gotten into like a, not even a shootout, but uh, a cop happened upon him at one point and he opened fire on the guy. <laughs> and like a woman looked out her front window and saw all this and she testified. So that was like one day. So it was just this riveting trial. And then, you know, one day, I, again, I'm in my usual spot in the, in the front row, and uh, a teller was testifying. The prosecutor asked that lead-up question, if, you know, the robber was in the courtroom, would you be able to identify him? And the teller hesitated, and she was looking in my direction. I had no idea, you know, why. But she hesitated, and the prosecutor should have realized something was up, and and should not have asked the follow-up question. <laughs> but she did anyway, and can you point him out? And so she pointed right at me, and, uh, you know, it was just the weirdest feeling. 
in the in the world. Um, Everybody jumped on you and well, handcuffed it was, you. It was a serious case, so I'm right next to the jury box. So of course I couldn't break out laughing. You know, I had to, like, <laughs> I had to keep it together. And and very in short order, the defense lawyer got his turn to do the cross. So of course he came over to me immediately. I knew him pretty well and had me stand up <laughs> so that she could better identify like my features, what it was about me. You know? and, and I knew the judge really well, too, and he later told me that day, he said if we'd made eye contact, he would have just completely cracked, cracked <laughs> up and lost it. But I, I stayed serious the whole time, and then, of course, as soon as the jury was out of the box and I'm leaving, it was like people were giving me all kinds of great <laughs> FBI agents, you know, pretending to arrest me. <laughs> So that guy must have got acquitted. No, that's the sad part of that story. Now, I, I, I ended up writing a first-person account of that day, and then because I was the news of the day, the misidentification, I wrote a third-person account as well. <laughs> and that got picked up all over the world. I did, like, radio interviews in Australia <laughs> and stuff, so everybody was having a blast with TV locally went to town with it, too. They'd show a picture of me, and then they had the uh, composite sketch of the bearded bank robber, you know, next to him. You know, um, so my kids, too, have, you know, heard <laughs> plenty about it. And uh, But believe it or not, then it turned tragic because uh, he was about, they, they were about to get into the testimony about his wife's death. Uh, the next day, and as they were taking him back to the MCC, he had a key, a universal key to his handcuff. He was handcuffed behind his back. They had a lot of security in the courtroom, but the mistake they made was when they took him down the elevator to the basement to get into a van to drive over to the MCC, they took him with about 10 other inmates, and he was in the back of the elevator, and he undid his uh, handcuffs, and then everybody proceeded out in front of him and he, as he came out he overpowered a woman a marshal got her gun and then another marshal had driven up uh, with the van shot and killed him and then made a, a run for it to try to get out of the garage area a retired cop who was working security of course had heard the gun shots and Eric, Jeff Erickson was his name. He was like pointing back, you know, like to th try to throw off this guy, like, you know, something's going on down yeah. there. But they exchanged gunfire. He killed that guy too. But the cop had shot him in the back and he started to go up the ramp, feet from rush hour traffic. He had a suit on too from the trial and he realized he wasn't going to make it. He put another shot in himself and died right out there in, the, in public view. So I was up in the little press room in the courthouse, and we were typing away, working on that day's story for the trial. And a prosecutor stuck her head in the door and goes, you guys, you guys know what happened? And we're like, no, what? <laughs> Jeff Erickson's lying downstairs dead, you know. The, you know what? <laughs> we were guys racing out, and it was like oh, a huge story, as you can imagine. And uh, just like went crazy, and that was uh, uh, very proud of the story we were able to produce. Um, the the attorney for Erickson, you know, helped me out tremendously, and 
and uh, actually uh, his mother had gone to the attorney at the start of the trial worried about him that he was going to make a run for it and the attorney had told authorities so maybe that was why there was a lot of security but they goofed up and you know what I had said before and so there were a lot of follow-up stories to that so it went from this comedy to this tragedy within you know a few days that is the best story I mean that's awful yeah but like that really escalated quickly. Uh, yeah, just a few days later. And the funny thing, my wife talks about this, is, of course, you know, I don't know if they were bulletins, but these stories went out on TV, bearded bank robber, you know, shot to death. And so my kids are thinking, I'm the bearded <laughs> bank robber. <laughs> so there was always concern about my safety, apparently. But uh, I was out there just hustling, trying to get this incredibly, you know, yeah. important breaking story. Erickson... Sounds like one of those guys, like a catch me if you can type of guy, like the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if he was. He 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 obviously was, you know, deceptively dangerous guy. Just yeah. incredibly dangerous. You know, just and there there was like a TV movie made of it. I don't think they they missed my part of it. Starring Matt O'Connor. They missed the best part of the whole story, <laughs> or, or an, a, an important part of the story. <laughs> 